Welcome to the Demystifying Diversity podcast, where each week we explore topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm Daralise Lyons. In this episode, we're talking about a subject that, considering my racial and ethnic heritage, has special significance for me. Biracial identity and the lingering impact of the one-drop rule. I never felt white, but I also never felt black. And I felt like to say that I was just black would have been to completely erase a huge part of my identity. But to say that I was just white would have been to erase a huge part of my identity too. So it was like I never, it didn't even, I didn't even understand how people could choose a side or why they would want to. Well, it may sound naive, but I didn't even understand when you said I didn't feel black. I don't feel like, what does that even feel like? Because we're all people. So if nobody's telling you what it feels like to be black or feels like to be white, then you just are. And I think that was always my, um, that's just how it was. You just were. I was born on September 8th, 1983 the daughter of an African-American father and the Irish and Italian mother whose voice you just heard. Although I've always claimed equal affiliation with my black and white ancestry, most black and white biracial Americans self-identify as black. Here's Rosita Buchanan. I don't know if you know the history of like the one drop rule. Yeah. But yeah, but I, I totally just feel like, you know, no matter how we try, how hard we try, we're still considered like a minority like we can unless we look white you know because a lot some of us can pass but a lot of us can't and I just feel like you know it's like in our society it's like white people are still like superior in a way and you know so I just feel like no matter how hard we try we can't really be white and you know have that experience. The one-drop rule, the notion that any amount of African ancestry makes a person quote-unquote colored, dates back to a time when blackness was more than an issue of affiliation. It was an issue of ownership. After slavery was abolished, what had once been a de facto policy of racial identification became formally codified into many state laws as a means of ensuring black-white separation. Today, there are no more laws about racial categorization and classification. Yes, there's a great deal of economic and geographical disparity, but formalized segregation is a thing of the past. Nevertheless, the one-drop rule remains interwoven into our cultural consciousness. The overwhelming tendency among Black, white, and biracial Americans remains to view Black, white, biracial people as, quote-unquote, more Black than white. Not only does anecdotal evidence demonstrate this biracial Black-only identification, Statistics show that black, white, biracial adults are three times more likely to identify as black than as white. As a biracial person who claims equal and simultaneous affiliation, I'm in the minority in a lot of ways. So is my friend and co-collaborator, Anna Marie Jones. Here's a snippet of a conversation between Anna Marie and her mother. Daddy and I always told you and Christopher that you had the best of both worlds. Do you remember that? Not really, but okay. that's how I feel. So maybe that's, that comes from what you told me. Rosita again. So my mom is, is black and my dad is white. Um, and it's taken me kind of a while to figure out how I self-identify. But 
I've pretty much figured out that I self-identify as Black. Isabel Ballester. I identify as Afro-Latina. Um, so my dad's Dominican and my mom is white. And for me, um, I also, like, through my being Dominican, I identify as Black um, just because of diasporic relationships and just cultural history and all of that. Jose Gonzalez. You know, growing up in an all-Black environment, I wanted to be like the people that I was around. And the people I was around were Black and African-American, so I didn't want to be white, even though my skin was the whitest in the building and the whitest in the whole project. <laughs> Jose is half Puerto Rican, half Polish. He can't speak directly to the Black-white biracial identity, but I felt it was essential to include his voice because his experiences help illuminate that when talking about race, we're talking about more than biology. We're talking about bias. I mean, I think so much of what you're saying, it really speaks to like the nuances behind race and ethnicity, right? Because there's like, there's the genetics of a thing. There's sort of how we see ourselves. There's how we fit within this larger social whole. There's a history that goes on. And I feel like all of it is important, but at the same time, all of it is constructed too. So it, I mean, do you get, I get confused when we start talking about race and ethnicity and, and culture, because culturally it sounds like almost like you identify or at least did identify mm -hmm. most with the African-American culture mm -hmm. of which you're not really a part, but you also are. It's, it's really mind blowing, right? Definitely. And, and even to this day, when I do workshops, you know, we talk about um, some of our biases in one of our workshops that we lead. And we, and I say, can I be transparent? And, you know, I'm doing this amongst teachers and they say, yeah, sure. Gonzo, we'd love for you to be trained. I'm like, All right, well, when I walked in this room this morning, and I saw all white faces, my heart started racing. I have a bias. If I walked into a room full of black folks, I would feel like comfortable, like a pea in a pot, like just ready to go. Like, let's go. Let's do this. But seeing all your white faces today made my heart race. And they were like, wow. And I said, look at my skin. My skin is pretty similar to yours. But I didn't grow up in this. I didn't grow up around and living in that white environment. So my culture, like you said, my culture, the culture of where I grew up, I feel like more with that culture than I do with my very own. And that, that has two, that has so many different impacts on my life. You know, from even my own people judging me, saying, oh, you're a sellout. You don't even know your own language. You don't know your own people. To white people going, why are you trying to be black? And then black people are just like, I'm cool with you. And that has impacted me a lot. Jose's acknowledgement that he feels more at home with African-American culture than Polish or Puerto Rican just goes to show that in and of itself, race has no significance. There's only the meaning we attach to it, meaning that comes from the past and has implications for the present and the future. Race is, is a made-up, you know, <laughs> social construct, I think. And then there's Malcolm Burnley, a Philadelphia-based journalist and the author of the article, My Biracial Life, a memoir, whose conception of his own race has evolved over time. I say mixed now. Definitely say mix. And part of part of actually writing that story, I think, got me to think through really deeply a lot of concepts about race that had been swirling in my head and that had kind of been built off of life experiences. And I think after writing that piece, I kind of came to the conclusion that, you know, really my experience has been much more that of a mixed person than versus that of a black person. And what I mean by that, I think, is that I've throughout my life 
pretty much only been identified as an other or, you know, identified as non-white or identified as, you know, at least in all white spaces. That much has been clear, but it's not always been clear that I've been black, right? So there's there's a space that's in between that I think I've occupied and kind of, I think it's a unique experience because people's confusion um, about my own race or people's reaction to my own race or the ambiguity of that, I think, um, I think is an, an experience in itself that's like unique. Approximately 12 million Africans were shipped to the Americas between the 16th and 19th centuries. Of these 12 million, an estimated 645,000 were brought to what is now the U.S. By the time of the 1860 census, the United States slave population had grown to 4 million. In this country, right, we have the history of slavery. So to be black Mm -hmm. means something about the power dynamic that Mm -hmm. it it might not mean in a different country. Um, So, you know, I don't know. Like, I think there's all these factors that go into how we come into the world and how much power we wield. But I think sometimes those get assigned to race. And I don't know. I think it's it's more an issue of like history and experience than it is of anything endemic to a people. I mean, I don't think there is anything endemic to a people. I don't know. Right. Well, I also think we have to be careful about letting history define us. We don't have to be defined by history, but at the same time, there's no denying that the past informs the present. Unless we look squarely at the enduring impact of what was, history is doomed to repeat itself. In fact, it is repeating itself in all of the racist acts that are happening every day. It was Thomas Jefferson who said, honesty is the first chapter of the book of wisdom. So let's get honest, Mr. Jefferson. Throughout his lifetime, the author of our Declaration of Independence, champion of liberty, and father of American democracy owned more than 600 slaves. One of the most well-known among them was Sally Hemings. Hemings was 14 when Jefferson, then aged 44, began having sex with her. By the time she died, she'd given birth to at least six of his children. Children who, by virtue of their blackness, were viewed as Jefferson's property as opposed to his progeny. Many have romanticized the relationship between the owner and his slave, calling Hemings Jefferson's mistress. And although it may not be entirely appropriate to revise their narrative using modern ideals, it feels essential to acknowledge that by today's standards, the third president of the United States would have been deemed a pedophile and a rapist. At one time in our nation's history, being a biracial child meant being the product of coercive, exploitative, or even violent sex. It meant your white biological father would never acknowledge you as his son or daughter. It meant that if your father was black and your mother was white, she might be disowned, disinherited, or forced to give you up, and he might be, well, depending on the year and the geographical location, he might have gotten lynched. The legacy of subjugation, exploitation, and discrimination is a huge part of why, even today, it feels essential for many multiracial Americans to proudly and loudly proclaim their blackness. And I think you really point to something like when it comes to black, right? Like there is such a spectrum of mm-hmm. what it is to be black, to look black, to be, you know, in that space. But when it comes to whiteness, the spectrum is 
far more narrow. So, mm-hmm. like, I, you know, I think, like, you, if you self-identify as black or I self-identify as black, like, nobody's going to challenge us on that. But mm-hmm. if I were to self-identify as white or you were to self-identify as white, like, yeah. that is challengeable. I think the only thing we can self-identify as is mixed like, you know, multi-ethnic, biracial, other, other, or black. Like, I don't think we can be in that white box, you know? There's a spectrum of blackness, and it seems to be widely acknowledged. But when it comes to whiteness, it's like one either is or is not. Right, right. It doesn't, I know, it's It's, so weird. Yeah, it is very, very strange. And the whole one drop, yeah, I mean, let's get back to the whole one drop. Yeah, so I have the same fr- frustrations with it too, and for so many reasons. But um, I think it also just—I mean, it's crazy. I—I I remember being very young. And I don't, again, I don't remember when, but like being introduced to—I don't know if it was called the one drop rule, but to that idea. Yeah. Um, and it's just crazy that that's like such a foundational uh, pillar of how people conceptualize race. I can't help but wonder if by embracing a spectrum of blackness while treating whiteness as an absolute and a binary, we're doing ourselves a disservice. The more people we can get in that dialogue getting comfortable with their whiteness and understanding the history of whiteness in America and the world, then we can start having some authentic conversations about race and not only being, um, you know, I'm not racist, but anti-racist content, anti-racist um, advocacy, anti-racism um, um, language is not okay just to not just say, oh, I'm, I'm not racist. Okay, that's great. But are you anti-racist? For many, refusing to acknowledge that they have any generational ties with perpetrators is their way of opposing racism. But is it effective? I understand, of course, that racism is the systematized and weaponized oppression of a people, and that it has become so deeply embedded into the cultural consciousness that it manifests itself in both subtle and obvious ways. At the same time, I can't help but wonder if we could, as a society, begin to acknowledge that many more of us than we've been admitting carry within ourselves a simultaneous ancestral legacy of victim and victimizer. Would it be better? Might we then discover commonalities between what we think of as two binary races? Whenever I walk in somewhere, people don't assume I am. And it gets to a point where it's frustrating. I'm like wishing I was a little bit darker and had more ethnic features that could people would lead people to assume that I'm definitely, you know, Puerto Rican or Latino or something like that. And I don't. So then when I announce myself or will be in a room where that has to come up and I have to make a choice. I will go straight to like Latino, Hispanic, Puerto Rican. Give me, give me that first. And almost in a denial to the white side. I read about this in the, in the story that when Obama was president, I think it was during his first term, but maybe it was his second term. It was this really famous picture of this kid who was actually from Philadelphia. I mean, randomly, I should say. Um, there was this kid from Philadelphia who went to visit him and he touched his head because he wanted, it was a black, you know, black kid, and he wanted to touch his hair to like feel, make sure like the president's hair was like his hair. And it was this moment that really stood out to me because it was crystallized like in a very small anecdote. Um, kind of this experience of Obama, I think he 
you know, reading into the kid's actions, it seemed like, uh, you know, he knew he was black, but like also like didn't think he was darker skinned enough or something. So he had to touch his hair in this way to kind of like give him authority. And I kept thinking about that moment and how throughout my life, at times I've tried to claim being black, at times I've tried to claim being mixed, but my hair has always been one thing that I think has really stood out with a lot of people when I, I've tried to identify as black or even as mixed, they've been skeptical of it because of my hair, my hair not feeling um, black enough. Barack Obama is almost universally cited as America's first black president. And in a recent U.S. census, he categorized himself as black. But his mother was white. Conversely, according to his DNA profile, white supremacist Craig Cobb is 14% of African descent, yet he refuses to acknowledge his blackness. Look, I am not comparing Obama's decision to self-identify with his African ancestry with Cobb's choice to eschew his. Nevertheless, I want to think critically about whether embracing more non-binary, more nuanced ways of conceiving of race might be useful. After all, doesn't empowerment begin with ownership? Not ownership of others, but of the truth? I asked my mother how she decided to raise me as black and white. It wasn't a decision that I had to think. It was never a decision. It was just the truth. You are part black and part white. So I never had to think about a decision. Yeah. This was the truth. You're biracial. You're two races. Technically, that is accurate, and that's how I identify. But at the same time, I don't believe that biracial people who identify with their minority race are being disingenuous. They're saying what they've been conditioned to believe, or they're trying to articulate something about their lived experience, something that can be difficult for other people to understand. Having racial and ethnic identity for me is so important. Like, I love being brown. I love being black. For the most part, you know, looking back on it, I was just like that kid trying to fit in. I've always felt welcomed in the black community. Is race a feeling or is it a fact? Could it be that to not acknowledge the complexity of biracial identity misses out on the fact that there are experiences that are unique to biracial black and white Americans? I've always believed that for me to identify with one race to the exclusion of the other would strip me of an important segment of myself. And it seemed to me that there might be something distinct about the biracial experience that isn't so easy to describe if we opt to pick a side along this imaginary ethnic divide. Because one of the things that I found is that sort of like the biracial identity often gets subsumed into like the black identity. And I understand where that comes from in terms of the history of that and like why it would be so important to create that alliance. Yeah. But I also think it does sometimes erase like the nuances that people like, I, I don't so know. True. Yeah. I know exactly what you said. I mean, I was like, what I was definitely trying to trying to say is that, yeah, it gets subsumed into that. And I think from like a political perspective, particularly, or like a, just a resources perspective, I get it because I can't remember the first person who introduced this idea to me, but, you know, at some point when I was young, someone introduced this idea that, um, you know, the black black American population is already small enough and that if more people start identifying as mixed or, like, biracial, it's kind of going to slowly kind of, like, erode the the power or, like, even, like, from a census perspective, you know, if it's suddenly, you know, 13% black is going to go down to, like, 
8% black and 5% mixed, there's this sense somehow that it's going to be harmful. But like you're saying, I think that whole philosophy doesn't really jive with individual experience. You know, like the experience of being mixed, um, the experience of some people who are mixed who look, I think, a certain way, maybe it makes more sense for them to identify as black. But there is a whole group, and I think, I don't know if it's the majority of people who are mixed who I think probably feel like we do, which is that that category is important to our experience. And like that does tell, that, that tells something specifically that you couldn't say if you identified as black. I can occupy white spaces in a safer way than some other brown people and black people. There's a lot of ways in which I am just as at risk strictly based on the fact that I'm mixed, and people really have a problem with that. It's like my safety comes into question not necessarily because I'm black. I mean, yes, but more so actually because I'm also white, which is crazy. Well, there's more. I mean, I think the mixed race identity in some way can be more threatening. I mean, my experience has been more that I tend to be included in a multitude of spaces, but yeah. it could just easily be that I am threatening. Like, you know, I mean, a, like, an, I don't know, a neo-Nazi or something is going to be way more right, threatened right. by me than exactly. by someone who is African-American. Like, yeah, because I speak to, well, oh, gosh, they're infiltrating us, you know? It's, yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah, I honestly, like, I think about that all the time. And I'm always like, like so a lot of times, like, especially, I probably see this more, well, I guess it's just different. White people respond to me in a rude way. Black people respond to me in a rude way. And mostly it's because it's for the same reason. So I have skin privilege. Um, and I have come to grapple with that. Like, sometimes I hate it. I'm like, oh, my God, I hate this. It feels really weird to be white passing, light skinned, and to fight to take up space as a person of color. This idea of this tragic mulatto, it's horrifying, honestly. It's, black folk have this concept that, like, basically when mixed folk identify with what we were just talking about of, like, it's really hard being mixed. It's really hard being mixed and, like, being seen as white sometimes when you – literally everything we've been talking about with the past hour, right? But there's a term for that of, like, this, of being called a tragic mulatto that somehow, like – that's some sort of, like, it's ridiculous of us to ever feel that way or think that way when it's considered a privilege, you know? And I, I that to me is, like, I feel super judged by that. I'm like, but you don't understand what it, like, this idea of not being black enough and not being white enough or too black for the white family, too, too white for the black family, that is being a tragic mulatto as, as if that's somehow this, like, anomaly of, like, I can't believe you would say that. It feels like there's something very distinct to the biracial experience where it's like, well, which side are you closer to? And yes. somehow that gets defined yeah. by external appearance as opposed to culture or experience. That's that's so true. And I don't know if this happened to you, but I remember like kids, even just growing up, being also it's interesting because kids are so concerned sometimes about things having to fit into categories or whatever. But people asking me that question, like, well, you meant so like which, but like which one kind of like, you know, as if like I had to pick at like, you know, age nine or something. And it's like, no, like it's never really been like that. It's just a different thing. It's not all bad. 
There's a lot that I and many of my interviewees appreciated about existing in a non-binary space, about living within the rainbow of colors between black and white. Here's a short message from our episode sponsors, without whose support the Demystifying Diversity podcast wouldn't be possible. For most of us, when it comes to money, we have no clear direction. We know what we want financially, but we get confused as to how to get there. John and Patty Lavin, the owners of Lavin & Associates, a branch of Primerica, are committed to offering all people the opportunity to achieve financial freedom. Lavin and Associates offers a complimentary cutting-edge financial needs analysis that works sort of like a GPS, or you can think of it as a money map. By giving you a clear route from where you are to where you want to go, this analysis empowers you to become properly protected, debt-free, and financially independent, so you can worry less about money and enjoy your life more. I had a financial planning session with John a couple years ago, and I went from $0 in the bank to more than $10,000 plus a retirement account. To set a time to speak with John, a financial advisor for 40 years, and receive your free financial needs analysis, call him at 610-453-2331. Or email him at johnlavin at me.com. That's J-O-N-L-A-V-I-N at me.com. And let him know the Demystifying Diversity podcast sent you. I am so excited to announce my new book, Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. The book and its accompanying workbook are based on the interviews I conducted, and they delve even more deeply into the stories of the many people who spoke with me about their experiences of struggle and hope. I learned so much from the voices on the podcast, and there's so much that didn't make it into these episodes. So for a more in-depth exploration and a whole lot of tools for racial literacy, cultural competency, and increased empathy, Get a copy of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity by me, Dara Elise Lyons, wherever books are sold. One of the things that I think is great about being multi-ethnic um, is that, you know, we can kind of adapt to our surroundings and fit in anywhere. You know, we, we get accepted more often, you know, because, I mean, the stereotypes, it's like light-skinned people, you know, are favored more than dark-skinned people. And it's, I mean, it sucks that that's, you know, how society views it. But, I mean, across multiple cultures, that's how it is. Um, but, you know, I feel like because, you know, we look the way that we do and we have, you know, it's like we have experiences with, you know, with white people and black people or, you know, other um, ethnicities. It's like we understand some of the nuances of that culture, you know, that other people who come from one culture or one ethnicity, you know, wouldn't know. You know, we can kind of just blend in and fit in wherever we go. And we're accepted pretty much most places. In my middle school years and high school years, the schools I went to were predominantly white. And so I think I always wanted to grasp, um, I, I don't know, identify with being black as something that was, identifying as black seemed to make more sense in that context because it was predominantly white, if that makes sense, because it felt like 
well, I'm being considered the other, so I'm black in this instance. But then when you get into a bigger world and like living in Philadelphia and living in a bitter, bitter city, bigger city, you realize there's this whole spectrum. And so I think my experience has been much more that of like a mixed person. The social, political, cultural, and judicial history of interracial sex and the biracial children it produces has left more than a legacy of exploitation. There's also the legacy of the Lovings. It was 1958. Richard and Mildred Loving had been married for five weeks when police burst into their home in the middle of the night and arrested them for violating Virginia's Racial Integrity Act. Huh, integrity, that's a joke. According to Virginia state law, it was a crime for Richard of Irish and English descent and Mildred, African-American and Native American, to have gotten married. The Lovings were tried and found guilty for the crime of interracial marriage and given the choice to either go to prison or to leave Virginia for 25 years. The Lovings left, but they didn't give up. Missing their lives and their families in Virginia, they fought the Virginia judge's decision. It took nine years, but finally, in a unanimous decision handed down on June 12, 1967, laws banning interracial marriage were deemed unconstitutional. I often go back to this phrase of, like, my existence is resistance. The example set by the loving shows us that we don't have to allow the rules and rigidities of a bigoted society to tell us how to live or who to love. We could be the healing When you're feeling all alone We can be the reason To find the strength to carry on In a world that's so divided We shall overcome We can be the healing We can be the flower in the gun We can be the healing We could be the flower in the gun one of the things that I hope this piece will give people and that I hope, you know, I can embody as a multi-ethnic person is like history matters and, and we need to learn from it, but we don't necessarily need to define ourselves with mm. the same labels and terminology that once was. Like I have a problem with the one drop rule because, you know, it comes from, <laughs> it comes from, you know, uh, like, racism and bigotry and hatred and I feel like if we're still defining ourselves based on that then we're perpetrating further racism and hatred and so I'm not I think it is possible to be a biracial person who has lived a black experience and to own that but that's very different than self-identifying as black because you have to right or you know or vice versa I'm not sure what it's like to be a multiracial person with two multiracial parents, but I have learned from personal experience, from my interviews, and from the extensive reading I've done about the subject, that being the biracial child of one black and one white parent carries its own set of experiences, and we can use these experiences in ways that help or hinder us. When it comes down to it, I'm way more invested in helping my mom understand anything than a random white person. Because that's my mom, and I care about her, and I want her to understand. My mom's white, and I think, yeah, I think I've always, I've gone, like, my relationship with her has always been complicated for that reason. Having a black mom, I think, you know, she purposely made sure that I spent time around black people. At least when I was younger. And I think a lot of that probably just had to do with also, like, resentments or probably irrational resentments about 
her kind of confusing things for my experience because of the fact that like, you know, I'm here now because I'm a product of a biracial relationship and somehow being more frustrated with her than I was with my dad. And I don't know why, you know? Uh, and I think I came from this like resentment somehow uh, because I think she was white. Depending on who raises you, you yeah. could get pulled in one direction and then you feel a loyalty to that one direction yeah. or a disloyalty and you feel guilty when we didn't um, disassociate with either side of the family, yeah. when we didn't hyper um, identify with either side either. Um, and I think that's where I'm learning. Some kids are getting the hyper identifying from a parent mm -hmm. for one reason or another. I think what's tricky is that the way that I go throughout the world, this is not a white experience. And so, yes, like the, I think because I, because of how people perceive me, um, or just even the way that like, the way that I just experience things, the way that I go about the world is just like not a white experience. And so, it's easier for me just to be like I'm Afro, I'm mixed Afro Latina, um, because that's the most, that's the closest language I have to naming my experience. But I think what, in a similar way, like having a being raised by a white mom as a kid of color, is a whole other layer of identity. Like, what does it mean to be like Afro Latina but raised by a white mom? And that comes up all the time, like all the time. Probably at least once a day. I relate so much to that, having a white yeah. mom who didn't know how yeah. the heck to do it. And, like, nothing against her. I mean, how would she no, have of course. known? Exactly. But, like, right. And then, yeah. you know. Like, they and, try their hardest. Like, they really do. But sometimes it's just, like, not, not that it's not, it's never not enough. But it just wasn't, I don't know. It just didn't fit. <laughs> Well, I mean, I think my mom didn't know how much she didn't know. Like, I don't yeah. think she knew oh, that, like, oh, it might have been helpful to have someone teach my daughter these things that I don't right. know how to do. At the time I was conducting Isabel's interview, I attributed certain elements of my past to having been raised by a white mother. But now I'm not certain the things my mother didn't understand about biraciality were rooted in her whiteness. Instead, I've come to believe that whatever distance existed between my needs and her knowledge stemmed from her having a child whose hair texture, skin pigmentation, and features were different than hers. And I want to be clear that these same issues can and do happen to a lot of parent-child pairs with and without the element of race factoring into the equation. Something all my biracial interviewees had in common were hair issues. I'm the only one in my family who has hair like I do. So no one really knew what to, and my mom is white, and I was raised by her. So it was just like a whole big experience for me of dealing with just like hair growing up and figuring out like what to do with it, how to manage it, all that stuff. And people constantly making comments about like how big it was or like how I didn't need a pillow to sleep at night because I had my hair or like... Just, you know, consistent comments. Even in, like, biracial, or writing about biracial people or bi-biracial people, um, it seems like the hair angle or theme comes up, but usually only from a woman's perspective. And I was interested, too, in just, like, I, like, always related to several pieces I remember reading, just in, like, the Huffington Post or, like, somewhere else, like, um, you know, pretty quick 
op-eds or whatever. And I'd always related to all these women telling their stories about their hair, biracial women about their hair. And so, yeah, I wanted to explore that, not from a male perspective, but it was something that popped up in my life a lot too. My mom was amazing in a multitude of ways, and I wouldn't trade her for the world. But until I embarked on this series of interviews, I told myself that if she'd only been black, she'd have known how to handle my multi-ethnic hair. When I asked her about this, she set the record straight. Did you ever worry about things like, you know, it's funny, I've been doing these interviews, right? And like invariably what comes up is the idea of like hair care or, you know, just things that you might not have had to contend with as a white person. Like, and if you'd had a white child, like I think you wouldn't have had to deal with it. But were there any areas where you felt like, oh gosh, this is like, I don't know how to deal with it because of your race? No, black or white, I wanted to power my daughter. So it just never dawned. I mean, once you are here, there were challenges to your hair, but I, like everything else, I just kind of study, I research, I talk to people, and I think I did a pretty good job figuring out how to, you know, how to do your hair, which was very challenging. Because actually, in talking to black women, they even admitted yours was harder because it was like every strand was very thin, but very curly. And a few of them were like, oh, you don't know how to do our hair. Then they tried. They were like, wow, as soon as you comb one section and get all the knots out and you move to the next one, the first section was back naughty again. So yours presented a special challenge, but we love to watch movies together. So I'd plop you in front of a movie and spend the hour or whatever just braiding or combing or so it's just time together. So I didn't, and I just didn't anticipate. I, I didn't look forward to what issues there might be. My mom was right. Although her mother is Black, Rosita told me that she didn't learn the basics of biracial hair care until she went away to college. For most of my life, it's like I, I got perms and relaxers and to get my hair straight. <laughs> you yeah. know, and now that I've embraced my curly hair, my mom's like, oh, now you look different. Now you look you know, exotic and special. It's what sets me apart. But that's interesting because your mom has straight hair. She does, but it's not hers. Exotic. That's a word that came up so many times I lost count. I think we fit into the exotic category. I've always been told that I look exotic, whatever that means. What does it mean to you? Because some people have said that they love that, and some people have said they find that offensive, mm-hmm. the word exotic. Um, I think it sort of just means that we have our own, like, unique beauty, and we don't yeah. really fit into a box. I take it as a compliment because it's like, oh, I'm different. There's a word that's that's come up again and again and again over the course of my interviews, <laughs> which is the word exotic. And I'm wondering if you've ever had that word applied to you and how how you – Take that word. Yeah, definitely. I think there's probably been a few instances in my life where that's actually been used. But I mean, that word, I've always felt it being really powerful. And I felt like that spoke to certain experiences. Um, And yeah, I think a lot of the mixed experience is that being exotic. Just having people literally come up to me and and ask those questions about what you are. And it always felt like... um, Yeah, I feel like being exoticized for sure. In 1970, 1% of the babies born were multiracial, as compared to 10% in 2013. 
The numbers of multiracial children being born is growing at an increasingly fast rate, three times faster than the U.S. population as a whole. As of 2015, multi-ethnic Americans accounted for 6.9% of the total population. It is estimated that by the year 2045, the U.S. will become minority white. Eventually, being biracial or multi-ethnic will cease to be the exception. It'll be the rule. How do you perceive the word exotic? Like, how do, what does that do to you when someone says, oh, you're so exotic or... Oh, I take offense to that. I think I wouldn't have taken offense to that in my high school years because I was, like, struggling with a lot of things. And so for someone to, like, outwardly say that they found me exotic meant that they found me beautiful and that was, like, important to me. But as I got older and as I started, you know, studying this more and just learning more about the history of what it means to be called exotic, I'm like, oh, that's ridiculous. I'm like, oh, I reject this exotic notion because this is a way for you to, like, what's the word, like, make me different actively, but in a really microaggressive way. According to the literature about racial affiliation between Black and Black-white biracial Americans, a great deal of what makes us biracial Americans claim our Blackness to the exclusion of our whiteness has to do with discrimination. Um, I think, like, in middle school, um, somebody called me the N-word, and I got really upset because... Oh, and at the time, I didn't really understand, like, the history behind it or, you know, so it's like I was upset about it because I knew I was supposed to be upset about it, but I didn't really understand why. And I think I, like, tried to hit the kid or something. I don't remember. Um, but, yeah, I think it was during middle school that happened. And it was pretty common. Pejorative words are the result of ignorance, fear, hatred, and intolerance. Well. You know, you have to understand where people are coming from. When you don't know something and you don't understand it, you fear it. These words hurt all of us, creating unnecessary divisions. How we react to them and the racism that lies underneath them is critical. Anna Marie's mother spoke to her about an experience her son, Anna Marie's brother, had involving horrible racist language. We decided to let you hear about it exactly as it happened. As you kids started getting older, um, you know, like uh, David Resnick called Christopher a nigger one time, mm-hmm. and they were fighting or whatever, and I called Debbie on it, and I said to her, you know, name calling is not necessary, and my children are not niggers. They are people. And if that's what you think, then this friendship or relationship is ended. Once, when I was in elementary school and attending an afternoon after-school program at the Boys and Girls Club, one of the white girls in my group called a black boy the N-word. I beat the girl up and got sent home for fighting. When my mom found out what I did and why, not only did she not lecture me, she told me she was proud. I was never the target of any discrimination, racial or otherwise. In fact, my personal experiences of race were almost all opportunities for curiosity and connection. If we're, people were to look at you, I said, oh my gosh, they think you're gorgeous, you're special, you're beautiful, you're golden, you know? So um, your perception was not that people were looking at you in a negative way, just that people were curious. I remember one time you were at a party, I think you were about six or seven years old, it's a birthday party and some girls, a couple girls came over and they said, 
are you black? And you said, well, half and half white. And they said, oh, and you all skipped away together. But I, you had never been predisposed to think that was a question that was negative. They were curious, and they asked, and then you all played together. So I just always really tried to not – I tried to make it so you weren't predisposed to thinking curiosity or questions were negative. Hi, this is Anna Marie. Daryl and I thank you for tuning in to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. We'd love to hear your voices on topics of diversity. So join in on the conversation by calling 844-888-8148 and leave us a message or drop us a note through the website, www.demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com, and we'll do our best to answer your question during our Q&A episodes. Are you allowed to weigh in on overall what you thought about being raised just as a human being without regard to race? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I mean, I felt like, I almost, I just felt like it was kind of similar to me being able to say, you know, I have brown curly hair and I have brown eyes. Like it didn't, it didn't feel like there was any value assigned to any like to any of it so you know if someone asked me what my ethnic makeup was I would say you know my mom's Irish Italian and English my dad's African American Native American and French I've since learned through ancestry DNA that like I think I got the equations a little bit wrong <laughs> but but like you know I mean I just I just always felt like it was never it was never any more meaningful than like if someone's like oh you know that person is tall and that person is short and this person has blue eyes and that person has green like there were certain things about being multi-ethnic that I really liked like about my features and certain things that I found challenging like I didn't love that it took hours to comb my hair and that you know like I, I mean I just there were certain things that I wish were different but it never had anything to do with race in my mind it was just like the same way that maybe you know kids who burn in the sun might like wish for darker pigmentation or kids who you know like I don't know are shorter might want to be taller or taller might want to be shorter like it just there was never I was aware of features and I was aware of um, difference and I did see color because I think it's a little ludicrous to say that a person doesn't like I you know I but I didn't assign any value or judgment to race when it comes to racial and ethnic identity I don't pretend to have all the answers but my conception of an ideal society is one in which people can own and embrace all aspects of their identity this doesn't mean ignoring history or failing to acknowledge how it continues to inform how we think feel and behave on the contrary it means being brave enough to get honest with ourselves and with each other. Because you're uncomfortable with this thing called race. And so in order to deal with that, let's say, I see, I don't see color. I see. And so that, that's the, the person's way of trying to feel comfortable with this thing called race. And people are uncomfortable as a society of dealing with this thing called race. We don't want to talk about it. It it's, has been a scab that continues to get picked off and bleeds again, picked off and bleeds again. And no one tries to completely heal the wound. I asked my mom how things are different now than they were when I was born 36 years ago. 
there's a lot more discussions. There's a lot more books, including one that you wrote, I'm Mixed. <laughs> Thanks and, for the plug. <laughs> um, so I do think there's more discussion. Um, yeah. I, I think there's more discussion and more conversation. And hopefully people are are more accepting on both sides. I asked what it was like when I was growing up. Mm, was there anything that like surprised you in either a good or bad way about like you know raising a multi-ethnic child that you think was unique to that experience that might not have come up if you were raising a child that wasn't multi-ethnic? I guess the only what surprised me the most is how differently I felt from every other interracial couple I knew. I was actually part of a group of interracial parents, and there were probably about 10 couples, and probably nine of them was the black husband, white wife. And, you know, literally we had kind of a, a facilitator one day come lead kind of a group conversation about how we sh- should we raise our kids black or white. And I was the only one who said that's ridiculous to even feel like you have to choose. They are the reality is they are part black, they are part white. And to this day, how many people think that if you have a biracial child, you have to tell them they're black? And that's still astounding to me. Then she surprised me. My mom turned the tables. She wanted to know whether or not I had drawn any conclusions from my life experiences and the interviews I'd conducted. She asked what I thought had changed culturally since I was a child, what had stayed the same, and how I viewed blackness and whiteness now. Well, I'll say this. I'll say it on the record. It probably won't make it into the podcast. Spoiler alert, it did make it on. I've found is that, it, you know, to me, it feels like people are having more discussions, but, like, it almost feels like we've so overcorrected as a society that it it feels like, you know, now there's like all you white people over there and then there's people of color and it almost feels like this like this struggle, this power struggle that people are locked into in a way that just wasn't present when I was younger, you know? And so granted, I do feel like now, you know, it's more accepted to say, oh, I'm biracial, I'm multi-ethnic, but it's also, like, less accepted to be white. I didn't know how to say it, so I just didn't. But I do think there's, like, yeah, like you're saying, like, the overcorrection is making it, it's making it challenging. Right, yeah. I mean, I and think, some it, ways I think we divisive, come... Too. I think it I think it is more divisive. I think that sometimes it's like we come to the to spaces with the expectation of conflict and it becomes this just this polarized narrative of like people who just by virtue of, you know, in the same way that I did not choose to be multi-ethnic. I'm grateful that I am. I love it. It's part of my identity. I'm not unchoosing it, but I didn't choose it. You know, I didn't choose it. I was born multi-ethnic, and that is my experience. And, you know, like, I wouldn't want to be hated for that, and I certainly wouldn't want to hate someone who happens to have been born white or male or just because 
they were born right that way or someone you know african american or um you know uh gender non binary or like i just i think that i just think we have to be careful sometimes that in trying to create safe spaces for all we really are creating safe spaces for all and not just making people who were once safe unsafe now i agree so well said something that came up a lot over the course of my interviews was that whether they wanted the role or not the biracial person in the family often ended up being a source of racial unification within their families bringing historically disparate binary races together and opening the hearts of those who had previously behaved in bigoted and ignorant ways. You know, the interesting thing is they don't, they didn't like my mom, but they treated me like, you know, like, well, they loved me. Once they saw you, everybody fell in love. But there's a price for this. The price of not being able to own the unique nuanced nature of the multi-ethnic experience the price of feeling like you had to choose, the price of exotification. I don't know if this has been your experience, but it's like simultaneously feeling special and separate. Yeah, like separate, yeah, really special and like really lonely. Yeah. Uh, At least that's how I always felt, which was like a weird thing. It's like how you feel really lonely despite the fact that uh, you feel like you're being noticed. It's like you're noticed, but you're not understood. Right, or like noticed but not seen. Like that objectified versus like object versus subject or something. Like Yeah, noticed but not seen. Exactly. Um, To a degree, I think that's that's always... uh, That's always kind of in my mind, I think. Or I still worry about that. Even people who I know, like who I'm friendly with, I feel like I often... Uh, or friends of mine who like I share a lot of things with and have real experiences with, I sometimes still like in my mind I'm like I don't know maybe I'm just like some token you know token person in their their life or in their relationship or whatever. Um, I worry about that all the time. I'd like to close by reading the book my mother mentioned earlier. Thanks for the plug, mom. I wrote this simple children's book under the pseudonym Maggie Williams to differentiate it from my hard-hitting journalism creative nonfiction, and adult literary fiction, which I write under my actual name, Darylise Lyons. This book is entitled I'm Mixed. I will not say that I'm just black. That might make my mom feel bad. I will not say that I'm just white, because that leaves out my dad. Instead, I am proud of the shape of my nose, of all of my features from my head to my toes, of my smooth honey skin and my soft curly hair. And I don't even mind if some people stare. And when they ask me, are you black or white? I say I'm mixed and that suits them all right. They say you are beautiful and I smile with glee. I know I'm accepted for just being me, for never pretending to be just one race or another, for never ignoring my father or mother. I raise my head up to the sky and cry to all I see. I'm black, I'm white, I'm beautiful. I'm mixed and I'm proud to be me.
Thank you for listening to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe. And if you'd like to join in the conversation, visit demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com or call 844-888-8148 and leave us a message. Many thanks to interviewees Rusita Buchanan, Isabel Ballister, Joanne George, Jose Gonzalez, Malcolm Burnley, and Sunny Taylor, and to our episode sponsor, Lavin and Associates. Each episode of the Demystifying Diversity podcast is written, reported, and produced by me, Dara Lise Lyons, with the invaluable assistance of Anna Marie Jones, reporter, producer, and co-collaborator, Paul Kondo, assistant producer and editor, Raina Epstein, creative assistant, Sunny Taylor, content editor and creative co-collaborator, Zach James, marketing manager, and Monica Lynn, graphic designer. The music you heard is The Flower by Michael Franti and Spearhead, featuring Victoria Canal. If you'd like to explore these topics outside of the podcast, pick up a copy of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity, wherever books are sold. Join us next week, and in the meantime, let's practice empathy and work together to create a more inclusive world.